Lord, we rejoice in the gospel truth. We rejoice in your word. And we ask that you'd help us today that we would be those who yield ourselves to your authority. We are not here to hear my opinions or my word. We are not here to listen to the opinions of men, but we are here to listen to the word of our sovereign Father. And I pray that you would impact us with the weightiness of that responsibility, that you would soften our hearts and draw us to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Our culture today is inundated with slogans, catchphrases, proverbs, and idioms, all on the topic of love. You have, of course, uh, the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. You have the movement from the 60s. The hippie movement popularized the free love movement. You have the modern uh, social justice warrior known by the slogan, Love Wins. And our culture has learned that one of the best ways to defend your position on anything is to slap the label, label love on it. And nobody can oppose that because you don't want to be opposing love, right? The Norway Postal Service this uh, Christmas, this past Christmas, posted an ad uh, about uh, gay Santa. You may have seen that ad that was going around. And uh, in that ad, the, 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 these words were featured at the end of it. It said, in 2022, Norway marks 50 years of being able to love whoever we want. And it is perhaps for reasons such as these, as, as well as others, that when the Christian goes into the culture and sees all of these various ideas uh, and, and perceptions of what love is, that sometimes Christians say, if that's what love is, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Perhaps sometimes we are reluctant to love. Today, Love is equated with all sorts of things. And I think if you were to poll our community, uh, what did the, the census, there's 8,400 people in Orville. If you were to poll our community, you'd probably get 8,400 different definitions of what love is. Uh, but I think it, culturally speaking, uh, frequently love today is equated with a number of things, uh, including uh, passivity, uh, effeminacy, permissiveness, agreement, sex without rules. People are said to be loving if they don't confront others for sin, right? You just kind of live and let live. If you generally mind your own business, then you are a loving person. One person uh, recently described the progression regarding the modern spirit of the age, and he ranked them in order. Number one is tolerance, two, acceptance, three, mandatory celebration, for compelled participation. We are slowly being pushed to affirm the same things that the world affirms. And perhaps, I'll make a suggestion to us, behind all of these modern conceptions of love, whatever our world is saying love is, uh, I think perhaps maybe the glue that holds all of these definitions together is that love, according to our culture, 
can be fundamentally defined as anything that opposes any sacred order. And, and let me explain what I mean by this. Anything that opposes authority. To our culture, you are most loving when you most allow people to be in the driver's seat of their own lives. The, the, the least amount of outside authority is, to our culture, the most loving thing you could do. For you to impose anything, for you to suggest anything, is by default, by definition, to our culture, unloving. No appeals to Scripture, no confrontation, no correction, no speaking into their lives. And let me just make a suggestion to us that we, as a church here, as Crossview Church, ought to be asking one another to speak into our lives. We ought not to adopt this mindset of the world that thinks that, that we have somehow arrived. We ought to be going up to one another and saying, do you see any sin in my life? Is there anything that I need to change? We need to invite that confrontation into our own hearts. Today in the passage in front of us, we're going to see these words. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The answer is not to forsake love, but to reform our love. And so uh, we might say it this way. Reform your love, not just your theology. Your love needs to be reformed too. And our understanding and application of love, I would suggest, is severely lacking today. Never before in the history of the world, never before in the history of the world, have we had more access to biblical truth than we do today. We have, as has been mentioned before, an embarrassment of riches. We have literally, literally at our very fingertips, literally, access to volumes upon volumes upon volumes upon volumes of sermons and commentaries and everything that you could ever want to to help you understand the Bible. It's all right at our very fingertips. You can have all of your books and all of your systematic theologies, and you could talk about the Reformation, and you could talk about Martin Luther, and you could talk about uh, John Calvin, and you could use words that nobody else knows, like infralapsarian and supralapsarian. But if you have not love, what value is all of that? What is that worth? Reform your love, not just your theology. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read that. We are, for those of you who are visiting with us, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We started off in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, and we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book. We're simply doing that uh, because we believe that God knows what we need to hear better than we know what we need to hear. And so we're going to go through God's Word. And uh, we're in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Let's go ahead and read that together. We read this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." I was going to preach all of chapter 8, but um, I think last week I bit off more than I can chew, and so we're just going to slow down here and look at chapter 8 in two, uh, in two messages. Um, and so we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to use the following outline, simply um, the question in verses 1 through 3, and then the answer. Verses 1 through 3, the question, reform your love not just your theology. Paul begins here by addressing a Corinthian question regarding food offered to idols. Now, some of us may know what this cultural context was. Some of us may be unfamiliar with it. What are you talking about when you're saying food offered to idols? Uh, In order to understand what Paul is saying, it's going to be helpful to understand something about the culture of the day regarding food offered to idols. Because you read this and you say, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, it's a question. The Corinthians are asking Paul, what are we supposed to do about food offered to idols? What in the world does this mean? Well, in Paul's day, pagans believed that demonic evil spirits could enter your body and specifically through the food that you ate, okay? So basically you have, in Paul's day, this idea that these demons are kind of hitching a ride on this slab of meat, okay? And this demon is sitting on this, you can't see the demon, he's sitting on the meat, and it's like, if I eat this, he's going to get inside of me. And, and so what did they have to do in order to prevent this thing from happening? They would sacrifice uh, this meat to their false gods. Now, the meat was not sacrificed in the sense that you might perceive like an Old Testament sacrifice where it's all burned up because then it was unusable, but it was sacrificed in a way that it could still be eaten. Uh, It was not all burnt up. And people now perceived after you have this meat sacrificed to idols, the meat is, is clean now. Now it's safe from, the demons won't get into this, and now I can safely eat this meat, and it's all okay. After this meat is sacrificed, it was sent to the meat market. So now, any Joe Schmo on the street could go out and purchase meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, this is very problematic for these Corinthian Christians, because the question is, should I eat this meat? And and it's even more complex because it's not just an issue of should I buy it or not. The issue is what happens if I'm invited over to someone's house? Did did they purchase the meat offered to the idols or the, the, the other meat? What if I go to a wedding? What if I go to a cultural event? How am I going to know what what is going on with this meat? And so do I just stay home at my house all the time and just hope that I never come into contact with this? What What, what am I supposed to do? 
they were, Christians were divided on whether or not they could eat this meat. On the one hand, idols are fake gods, and it's all pointless and useless, and meat is just meat, and just get over it and eat it because it's just meat. And on the other hand, there's a connection or an association with idolatry, and we want to avoid that as Christians at all costs. And so what are we supposed to do? In, in uh, the, the Mishnah, we observe that Jews were prohibited from eating this kind of meat. And so now perhaps maybe even some Jews that are becoming Christians are, are, are saying, what in the world am I supposed to do? Now, I would be surprised if anyone in our church has ever had to deal with that issue. I'm guessing none of you have. Maybe... If someone was a missionary somewhere, they may have had to face that issue uh, because there, there are still some places where Christians face this particular issue. Um, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is, since we don't face the issue, is there any relevance to this text at all? Since we as Christians uh, sitting here in the 21st century since we have probably never faced this issue, since we probably never will face this issue, can, can we just skip this and go on to the next passage? Well, for starters, the Word of God is never useless, okay? So then how is it useful? This passage, and, and, and uh, I think many of us know, particularly those of, those of you who we're with us through our, our book study on the book Conscience. Um, know and understand that this passage, along with a couple others, uh, you have Romans 14, for instance, you have 1 Corinthians 8 here, have become really kind of uh, the paradigm or kind of the gold standard for the ways that Christians approach issues of what? Of conscience. Conscience matters. That is to say, issues in life that are not clearly expressed in Scripture. Areas that sometimes we may refer to as gray areas. Areas where the Bible doesn't necessarily give a direct command on it. How am I supposed to know whether I should do this or whether I should do this? And this passage has become really... Uh, kind of the paradigm for how to deal with those situations. If you are wondering, how do I deal with this issue that's not directly, clearly addressed in Scripture, where do you go? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so, so we would say that you have the first century application, but 1 Corinthians 8 has the underlying principle that's giving life to that application. Do, do you see that? And so what we're going to do is, Although we may not have this specific application, although you might not have to worry about meat offered to idols, all of the underlying principles, that is how you are going to or should arrange your life to know how to deal with these other issues that are not clearly expressed in Scripture. Does that, does that make sense? This is the conscience issues. How are we going to deal with that? And by the way, if you have not read the book, if you were not with us, um, I don't know, it was just a year, a year and a half ago now, uh, on our study in the book Conscience, I would highly 
highly, highly, highly recommend that you pick up that book. It was a great read, um, and, and I think it was helpful to us as a church. And so um, pick up that book, and if you have questions about that, I can, I can give you more information afterwards. Um, so keep in mind, what we're doing with 1 Corinthians 8, or what 1 Corinthians 8 is, is, is informing us to do, is how to deal with conscience issues in the life of the Christian. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8 in verse 1 says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The ESV, if you have that in front of you, puts the words, all of us possess knowledge, in quotation marks, because it's most likely that Paul was responding to something that the Corinthians were saying. Specifically, something that the stronger brother was saying. The stronger brother is coming along and saying, look, we all have knowledge. We, we all know what's going on here. Okay? And, and, and now this person is acting in a certain way because of this. What they were saying, and, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, and the rest of the text will bear this out, but what they were saying is, it's okay to eat the meat because we all have knowledge. We, we, we are all adults. We're all smart enough to know idols are not real. We, we all understand that. We all have this knowledge, and so it's fine. You, you weaker brothers, just get over it. Okay, it's totally fine. And Paul actually agrees with them. And again, we will see this momentarily. But in the meantime, he says this. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. There is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. There is a difference. There is a difference between having knowledge and applying knowledge. Or we could say it this way. There is a difference between knowledge and love. Anyone who has read, because we, we read this, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. How is this fitting in, in, in Scripture as a whole? Anyone who has read even one epistle of Paul immediately recognizes that Paul is not anti-knowledge. Okay? Paul is one of the hardest biblical writers to understand. He's not anti-knowledge. Instead, Paul is this. He is anti-loveless knowledge. And there's a difference. There's a big difference between those two things. We need both. We need uh, knowledge to inform our love. And we need love to give life to our knowledge. Love is the fire that warms our doctrine, while doctrine is the rail that directs our love. It tells us the love needs to go in this direction. The loveless Christian is a lifeless Christian, and the doctrineless Christian is a wandering Christian. Okay? We need both. They're like two wings of the airplane, okay? Which wing is more important, the right wing or the left wing? Um, both. <laughs> you, you can't really pick one of those, okay? And this is the same kind of idea here. What, what's more important, knowledge or love? Kind of both. We need both of these things. 
Uh, but Paul is not addressing both issues here. He addresses the one issue elsewhere, and he is addressing this particular issue, the issue of uh, a loveless Christian here. And perhaps some of us find ourselves in this position. In light of this, he writes, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. This is another way of describing the age-old problem that James has described, where he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Okay? Doctrine does not exist simply for you to fill your head and that's it. Okay? These Corinthian Christians that he's writing to, they were arrogant and they were flaunting their knowledge in such a way that it was causing um, or was hurting their fellow believers, specifically the weaker brother. We are reminded in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in what? Love. Do you see both there? Truth and love, both are needed. What you say is important, and how you say it is also important, right? We need both of those things. Chrysostom says, when knowledge is without love, it lifts men to absolute arrogance. And then Sibs says this, knowledge gathers materials, stone, timber, etc. What builds the house? The body of Christ, a loving and humble spirit. And so you need both of these aspects. Reform your love, not just your theology. And this emphasis continues on into the next verse. In verse 2, he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't know as he ought to know. You're already saying here, if anyone imagines he knows something, if you, if you think you're so smart, then you're not as smart as you think you are. He's talking to these arrogant, loveless Christians. The meaning of this verse, I'll give you two quotations here um, that I think give the meaning of this. And I don't know who said these. They've been attributed to Socrates, Einstein, whoever it is. Um, but uh, one of them says, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. And then this, the, the other one here is, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Anyone feel like that? <laughs> like, I've learned all this, and now... <laughs> Now I only know more that I don't know than I did before. That's the sense of the verse. Anyone who says, ah, I've arrived, I have all this knowledge, I'm wise. They don't have knowledge because those who have knowledge admit how little they know, right? If you imagine that you know something, you don't know like you should know. One of my professors on his graduation, I think it was when he was getting his... Um, his doctorate, uh, he was walking across the stage and he said, I've finally become a student. Um, you think, wow, he's, he's reached, you know, kind of the highest level that you can reach here. Uh, and, and yet I've become a student. And, and, and that, that's what true knowledge does, is it shows us how much we are lacking. But note the contrast here in verse 3. He's rebuking this kind of arrogant, I know everything, I've got it all figured out. Then he says, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So if, so, so we're talking about knowledge, what, what, what's the contrast between verse 2 and verse 3? The contrast is in who is doing the knowing. 
right? In verse 2, it's, it's me doing the knowing. I know this. I know that. And in verse 3, who's doing the knowing? It's God. You, that's what's the most important thing. That's, that's the contrast. The contrast is between those who think they know something and those who love God. If, instead of imagining that you're so smart, you instead love God, that reveals that God knows you. It reveals something else going on here. The point here is this. It is better to be known by God than to think that you know something. The, the, the person who, the, the subject of the knowing is, is what's important, Right? So you, you might recall um, Tozer's famous words in the Knowledge of the Holy um, in the very first line in chapter 1. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that, and that, is, a, that is true. Um, but that, that is talking about who's the, subject, who's the subject of the knowing there. It's me. So what I know about God is most important. That's, that's important. There was uh, a little bit of a corrective offered to this, and, and I don't even want to say something as strong as a corrective, but something that is compatible with this. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it related to how he thinks of us. I don't think this is an either-or thing, by the way. I think it's a both-and thing, okay? So um, I'm going to continue to quote Tozer because I think it's good. Um, but I think C.S. Lewis is giving the foundation for the other. What's most important is what God thinks of me ultimately, at the end of the day. And that's the gist of the verse here. It, it doesn't matter what you know, what you think you know. What matters is that God knows you, and that is evidenced how in verse 3. How is God's knowledge of me evidenced? In my loving of God. Right? You will evidence God's knowledge of you by your reciprocal love of God. Kind of the idea of we love because he first loved us. It starts with God. He, he's, he's the catalyst, right? It all starts with him. Life is all about God, right? And then everything that we receive is a gift from the Lord, even our love of him and our knowledge of him. What matters is that God knows you, that God has redeemed you. And how do you know that that's the case? Well, it's evidenced by your love for God in this particular passage. And that is the goal, that God would know us. And in his knowing, he would transform us, okay? That is the first section here. And now we shift to the second section, which is verses 4 through 6. Remember, we are making this statement. Reform your love, not just your theology. But you might ask a question. You might ask what this love looks like. How do you know what love looks like if you don't know what love looks like? We opened today with some skewed versions of love that are propagated by the world, right? If we were to poll everyone in our community, 
They would all have a different concept of what love is. And we see that and we say, we want true biblical love. So where do we go to find out what true biblical love looks like? Where would we go? A TED Talk? Where would we go? Go to our theology. Okay? So I want to amend our statement just a little bit. We've been saying this. Reform your love, not just your theology. And I'm going to amend that. And we're going to say it this way. Reform your love by reforming your theology. How do you know what your... How do you know what I should reform my love to look like? If, if we're going to say, reform your love, you could gather from that statement that we need to make some changes about our understanding of love or the way that we implement our love or even how we define love foundationally. All of that presupposes that you're going to reform it in the correct way. And where would you go to find out what that correct way to reform your love is? Well, God's given to us his word. And so reform your love by reforming your theology. Proper love is an outworking of your theology. If you don't know right, then you won't act like you act right. You'll be directionless. Which way am I supposed to go? This, this person is saying I ought to love him. And, and there's, I can do it this way or I can do it this way. Which one's the right way? You see, you need more than something that sounds fluffy, like, oh, just love. Yes, love. But which, there's a very real choice I have to make here about whether I should do this or this. And love is the outworking of our theology. And ironically, this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Um, verses 4 through 6 seems like the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. I mean, they asked a very just practical question. What do we do about meat offered to idols? And now Paul is just going all theological on them. <laughs> Can you just answer the question? Stop this, Paul. What are you, what are you doing? Why, why does it seem like it doesn't follow from the, the premise? Because we see a doctrinal statement on the nature of God. It seems misplaced here. Paul says, hey, what do we do about meat off our idols? And here in verses 4 to 6, there is one God, the Father. Did you misunderstand the question? Oh, you're giving... You're giving a good answer. It's just an answer to a different question, not to this question. That's kind of how it's it's perceived when we first read this. You know, it's it's like the the question is, hey, Paul, what about food offered idols? How should we handle that? Answer, God is one. Okay? Help me a little bit here. How is this this helpful? You see, let's see him develop this. In verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered idols, he restates the question. We know that an idol has no existence and there's no God but one. Giving doctrine here. He's dealing with the issue at hand. How should we deal with meat sacrificed to idols? 
Number one, remember that idols are not real. Number two, remember God's the only God. Theological statements, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods, right? Fake, not real. So-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So there's plenty of fake gods. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But in truth there is one God. Do not underestimate the significance of 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Highlight it, underline it, mark it in the margins. One commentator says, Paul's elaboration of this latter point in verse 6 constitutes one of the most important Christological claims in the New Testament. What is verse 6? It's, it's a confessional statement. It's a doctrinal statement. It is a doctrinal statement about the nature of God. And it's very unexpected. Did someone, maybe someone made a copy in here, right, and mixed up? No, this is perfectly appropriate to put here, even though it seems like at first glance it's not. One is shocked that Paul answers a practical question with theology, particularly after he just emphasized the importance of love. He just said, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And by the way, let me build your theology a little bit more. You see, they go together. It's awkward because one might expect him to give a practical answer to a practical question. Why does he need to get all theological when he's asked a simple question? Let's put it in the modern context, okay? Pick a conscience issue, okay? Um, Pick a conscience issue. Uh, uh, John, should we drink fair trade coffee only, okay? And I say, well, here's my answer to that. Love people and remember God's one. Okay, I kind of wanted a yes or no on that. <laughs> this is what's going on in this particular context. But the Corinthians are saying, Paul, what about meat offered to idols? And Paul says, well, you need to love people and you need to remember God is one. This is his answer to this question. Paul gives, as a response to a conscience issue, he gives um, a spinoff of the Shema. Many of you know this as one of the most cherished verses uh, by Jewish people in all of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, I would suggest to us, is the Shema of the New Testament. It's the same thing. But there's something different Do you notice anything different? What's different about the Shema of the New Testament? It mentions Jesus Christ. That is fascinating. 
Why is that fascinating? We have a statement here affirming the deity of Christ. As Douglas Moo says, one of the most important Christological claims in the entire New Testament. You have uh, Deuteronomy, the Lord our God is one. You have in the New Testament, one God, one Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, You see the significance of what's going on here? One cannot help but conclude the deity of Christ from this text. This is one of four explicit statements by Paul on the oneness of God. And in this one, he includes Christ. Now, how does that answer the question? Well, we are dividing this passage into two sections, and I'm preaching on kind of part one today, and Lord willing, next week uh, we'll preach on the second part, because he does get a little bit more practical in the second part um, than he does here. But this is all the foundation for what he's about to say. So, what about food offered to idols? Here's the logic that we have so far. Question, can we eat food offered to idols? Answer, in our text today, number one, love your neighbor. Number two, remember God is one. It's his answer so far. You need to love your neighbor because the how is just as important as the what. It's important that you love your neighbor. It's important how you do it also because Scripture gives us the way in which to do that. What we believe about food offered idols is important, but it's also important how we go about communicating that to others. And so remember, idols are not real. God is one. And that's going to influence how you understand this whole issue. Do you see where Paul is starting to go with this? Okay. He's, you've got the stronger brother. We can eat the meat. You've got the weaker brother. I don't think that's right. I don't think I should do that. And then you have Paul here, who's kind of agreeing with the stronger brother, but not fully. Because he's saying, your theological claims are accurate. Those are not real idols. God is one. Those fake idols don't exist. And so it is okay to eat the meat. It's fine. But Paul is giving a third option here, and that is Paul is not the weaker brother. He's not the stronger brother. He is the strongest brother. Because what we're going to find out, and I'm sorry to give you uh, too much of the next text here, but but Paul is going going to tell us that, yes, you can eat it, But if it's going to cause my brother to stumble into sin, I'm never going to eat meat again. And so he's taking into consideration what this might do in terms of leading another brother into sin. This is not merely an offense, by the way. Okay, There is a difference between being offended and being led into sin. And we'll see that uh, a little bit next week. But that's kind of the gist of what Paul is doing here. Idols are not real. God is one. But the way in which you do this, you've got to do it in a loving way. Reform your love, not just your theology. Reform your love by reforming your theology. You may be wondering, perhaps a shortcoming of our... Uh, of the message. There's probably a lot of shortcomings today, but 
in me, not in the text, in me. Why I didn't spend more time actually giving a definition of love. And the reason for that is because an entire chapter is spent on defining love in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we are going to get there. So, so, so if, if, if you're saying you could have given more of a definition of love, I'm just, I just want to give this kind of in the order that Paul gives it to us. And so when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll look more in depth at how to define love, specifically from a biblical perspective. But I want to just simply look at these first six verses and apply it the best that we can. And so I'm just going to put, um, put them up here. Number one... When you want to know how to love, look to sound doctrine. Now, specifically, again, 1 Corinthians 13 is going to shed a lot of light on this. So perhaps I could put a sub-point application under this. If you want to know how to love, read 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? Study 1 Corinthians 13. Um, But, of course, all of Scripture would apply in this situation. Um, Because we want to love, but we don't want to have a directionless love. We don't want to have an aimless love. That whatever the world says is love, I'm going to say that's love. So we have to, and this is the statement, we want to reform our love by reforming our theology. Um, Number two, reject the loveless knowledge by embracing wisdom. Okay, so we don't want to have a loveless knowledge. We want to embrace wisdom. This could be reading through the Proverbs, okay? What... Does it look like to live out the Christian life, practically speaking? So the Proverbs is an excellent source for that. Number three, and I decided I would give a few examples here, um, even though we haven't defined love fully yet, but here's a few examples. Pursue Christian love through fellowship, hospitality, serving one another. Um, We could say lean into the body of believers here, um, become less, uh, what do I want to say, individualistic, and lean on one another for counsel, for advice, for fellowship, for all of those kinds of things. Uh, The next one is speak the truth in love, so embrace both. Um, we want to tell people the truth, but we want to do it in a spirit of meekness. Not passivity, meekness. And then uh, the last one is, do not trample over other believers with your so-called knowledge. And this one will come become a little bit more clear uh, next week in the uh, last part of this. Um but let me just maybe give a little bit more context for this last point of application. Don't trample over other believers with your so-called knowledge. This passage is written more directly to the stronger brother than it is to the weaker brother. It is written to both, but Paul is specifically addressing the stronger brother here. You guys think that you've got it all together, okay, then act this way. Um, remember that these applications can be applied in a thousand different scenarios, okay? 
Um, they're talking about meat offered to idols. We, we could go around the room here, and each of you could give a list of conscience issues. Each of you could give your own example of a meat offered idols and say, I don't know what to do in this situation. What am I supposed to do? Um, just consider that we all have different conscience issues. These can be things such as entertainment choices, alcohol, music styles, so on and so forth. And this text is giving a specific answer, as we'll see in the rest of it, to a specific question. And part of that specific answer is, don't trample over your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so if you're saying, there's an issue here in our own church, let's say, and there's two people that disagree about an issue of conscience, and you are the stronger brother, the added responsibility, you, you have an added responsibility. That's don't trample over the weaker brother. Be kind to that weaker brother. And if it is genuinely a conscience issue, and it is genuinely not an issue of this is morally right, dictated by Scripture, then you need to be careful not to trample over the conscience of that weaker person. You love that weaker person. Not think they're, you know, a dork or whatever. I don't know. Right? And so this is a call for us to love one another. And I'm not saying to avoid these issues. We should talk about them together, but we need to love one another. So this passage, keep in mind, is written mainly to the stronger brother, warning him not to trample over the conscience of the weaker brother. And for the rest of the exhortation, we're going to have to wait till next week to hear that. In the meantime, remember, God is one, and love one another, as God's called us to do. Thank you so much for your grace to us, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the atonement and the fact that Christ... Uh, sacrifice himself for us. We thank you for the gospel. Pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord, as we work through various conscience issues, that we would be able to love one another, not trampling over each other, but giving grace and uh, showing one another that we uh, care for them where they are, and that we would lead one another to deeper knowledge of you, deeper knowledge of the word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.